HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, I'm joined by Chef Aaron Shimbura of Fausto, which recently opened on Flatbush, just north of Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn. Aaron's counterpart and co-owner, who you just heard in a radio commercial for Heritage, is Joe Campanelli. This, is the first, this isn't the first restaurant for these two uh, working together. Aaron was at Lartuzzi SCDC for six years. She's also worked in the kitchens at WD50, Mercer Kitchen, Del Posto, and Lupa. Today, we'll be talking about growing up right outside of New York and Jersey, transitioning from a big restaurant group to becoming an owner and partner of a standalone restaurant. And of course, we'll be talking about pasta. Aaron, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. So let's begin by talking about pasta. What is perfect pasta to you? Is there an iconic pasta dish that it doesn't have to be something that's on the menu at at the restaurant now, but is there a perfect representation of pasta for you? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I don't think there's a perfect representation for me. Um, I'm sort of all over the place with pasta. Uh, I think my favorite noodle right now happens to be the orchette um, on the menu. And then, I mean, when I go out, it's sort of my go-to noodle. Um, I don't know. Why is it your go-to noodle? It's there's a lot that goes into pasta, obviously from an ingredient standpoint, but also the the shape. I, for lack of a better word, it's the mouth feel. I don't right. love that <laughs> word, but I don't know a better way to describe it. How it actually interacts with the sauce and with your mouth. So, for you personally, why do you love that fl- uh, that uh, shape? I love how the ragu falls in and nestles in the actual or the actual noodle. Uh, there's something about the marriage of that combination that I really love. Um, with all pasta, it's the marriage of the noodle and the ragu, um, which is really important in how, uh, like you said, the mouthfeel. Um, it's a lovely marriage. Uh, the one that we have on the menu right now started off smaller. 
and then became a little bit bigger and now it's a medium size. Um, it's just, there's something that I've always just loved about that noodle from the beginning. We had it on the menu at Lupa. Uh, that's really where I fell in love with it. Very traditional with a pork ragu and broccoli rub. Um, it's simple. It's straightforward. Um, it's just a dish I've always understood and loved. So you said that it's on the menu at Fausto. When you say that the shape changes and things of that nature, I'm curious about how uh, that specific pasta is made. How do you, how do you make it at the at the restaurant? What are the ingredients that you use, and do you use a, a, a pasta making machine for those listening that aren't familiar? Can you also just describe? what that actual uh, shape is, uh, and then talk about your pasta-making process a little bit. Uh, the dough is actually really simple. Um, it took a few, actually a, a lot of different tries to get the hydration right and the flowers correct. Um, I just use dorum, which is extra fancy semolina, semolina and water. That's all that goes into it. Um, what the challenge for me was finding the right flowers and the right semolinas to make the final end point that I really wanted. Um, I went through different variations of how much dorum and how much semolina. Um, and then something just came together one day, mixed it, you let it sit. I like to let it sit for at least an hour uh, before it gets then hand rolled, uh, which is another reason I love the Arquette. It's really a labor of love. You make the dough, you let it sit, then you roll it, you cut it, and then you roll it again. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit <laughs> because we already started talking about pasta and Fausto, but let's jump way, way back to the beginning in, in Jersey. So you're from North Bergen. Right. And what was it like growing up all the way out there in the burbs before you moved to the big city? And uh, were you the type of family that, did you do a Sunday pasta dinner? Did you, were you into Italian food? What kind of food did you grow up eating in your house? Well, my parents were both teachers. Um, my dad tutored at night. My dad was a math teacher. My mom was a first grade teacher. Um, they were very busy. We had really standard family dinners together. Um, I mean, we were doing ragu out of the can uh, or out of the jar with pasta. Um, I didn't grow up in a household where there we, we ate what was convenient, um, which was easy to put on the table, which was wonderful. Um, I didn't grow up eating a lot of different foods. When we did go out, it was what I call Jersey Italian. Um, and that's, that was us going out to dinner on Fridays and Saturday nights um, where you could get chicken, piccata, marsala, any kind of chicken you want. Um, that was my Italian part of growing up. Uh, but I had a really normal childhood. I mean, I have an older brother. I played soccer. Soccer was really the focus of my growing up. Um, and the city when I was a kid seemed like a scary sort of place. Um, I was born in 1980, so the 80s were a rough time. Um, just seeing the news as a kid, being scared of the city. Um, but yep. we would come in for special type it, things, like go to a Broadway show or see a Christmas type thing. I guess the Lower East Side and Soho weren't <laughs> quite as sexy as they are now in, they were in 1981. Uh, <laughs> so when you when you did come into town uh, with your family for special occasions, do you remember, like, did your family have a certain spot that they went to, or did you just kind of randomly choose a, a restaurant? You we know? would just randomly choose a restaurant. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the big things were going out for, if we came in for a Broadway show, was we would have dinner right in that area of town, which would be the comfort food that we had out in Jersey. So it'd definitely be Italian, um, stuff that we really understood. It was really once I went to culinary school 
and started seeing more things and telling my parents about more things and having them try more foods that our food sort of got away from the the comfort level. So you actually were the one that opened up your family down the line. You opened them up to new flavors and and trying new things. Yeah. Cool. Uh so let's see, let's talk a little bit about what led up to culinary school. One of the things that I find really fascinating when, when I have people on the show and we're talking about their early lives is that a lot of people, their first job is waiting tables or working in a bar. And, you know, when you work in a, when you end up working in finance or something like that, you're not a 15 year old, you don't intern in a bank. Right. So <laughs> food people sort of have this, your career can be 20, 30 years long when you're young because it's usually people's first job. So uh, I know that you had a couple first jobs in food. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. And do you remember anything that kind of stuck out in your mind from those jobs? Like if they were meaningless and they were just for money, cool. But if if there was something that you that you learned or that you took away from those, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. My uh, my first actual restaurant job was when I was in high school, and I was a server at uh, a pretty traditional Italian pizzeria. So you could get your pizza to go, or you could sit down and have pasta. Um, and that's sort of where it started for me. I only got into that because my brother had been a server, and it just seemed fun um, and a great way to make money, and it was easy, and you know, I was moving, and I was on my feet. So I started off with that, and there was something about the way the kitchen guys were worked together in the front of house. And there was something about the culture of restaurants that I think I fell in love with. Uh, and then when I went to school, my summer job was I was a bartender uh, and a server again. And it was just a fun way to make money. Um, it was never about the food that was being put out. It was something about the community within the restaurants that I really understood. How did you end up getting involved in culinary? You went to Providence mm-hmm. for undergrad and... So you studied history and business, not exactly the, the you know the bedrock of of restaurant culinary pursuits. But then you transitioned quickly after that, and you did go to culinary school. Right. How did you make the decision to not pursue either more education or a more traditional job path, and and then go into culinary school? My senior year in college uh, was nine eleven. Um, so nine eleven happened in September. And then in February, a good guy friend of mine passed away uh, from school. So there were a lot of things that year that just were really unsettling. And I was a history major because I loved history. And when I had to pick a major, that's what I knew was going to keep me happy. And then I thought, well, do you know what? I'll just transition this into I'll be a professor. So my senior year, I was applying, or not, I hadn't yet applied, but I was looking to where to further my, uh, my education to get my master's because I wanted to be a professor. And then I woke up one morning after all of this stuff had happened, and I was like, I don't think I want to do this. And I called my brother, and he was like, well, then don't do it. So I was like, okay. So then I just chilled until graduation, and then a handful of my friends are from Chicago. So a bunch of us flew out for basically a joint graduation weekend celebration, and I was like, guys, I think I want to go to culinary school. And they were like, you should do it. Um, backtrack a little bit, junior and senior year, I would cook a lot of dinners for my housemates. So there were always nine of us in a house. Uh, so junior year, I would cook for my roommate and then the guys I lived with. It'd be, hey, guys, uh, dinner's at 7. Whoever can come, like, stop studying, like, come and chill, whatever. 
Um, so it sort of started with, I do that every few weeks. And then that became just a really comforting thing, um, especially during that time um, with everything that happened. Because I had a lot of friends who uh, lost siblings in 9-11, um, who had good friends that lost people. Um, so senior year was really shaky for me. And I didn't want to get into something that I didn't want to love, that I wasn't going to fall in love with. And something about food and community and sitting around the table um, really drove me to going to culinary school. So I got home from those graduation parties. I went online. I found the New York Restaurant School, and I started in September. What were those first couple days like for you when you enrolled and, and when you entered a totally different type of classroom where you were... A year prior, you were maybe going to be on a history professor track, and now right. you're learning how to maybe sharpen knives and cut tomatoes and make baked bread or whatever it is the first couple weeks of class. So curious how that – how did that feel? It was scary. Um, I'm not a person, I mean, at least in my past, that really did anything that scared the crap out of you. Um, that was the first thing that I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, like, which was really, really exciting. Um, but what I know is I'm a great student, so I felt really comfortable with all of that part of it and then learning how to cut and all of it. It was really, really exciting for me to learn the basics. What do you think today about cooks that have no training except for in restaurants? Because you have the foundation of, uh, a traditional schooling. So you had sort of the, you had the ability of time management and you know how to you know, be in the classroom, which mm -hmm. is also an important part of culinary school. And now for a long time, you've been a leader and now you're an owner. So I'm curious about how, how do you deal with cooks that are only from either like the school of hard knocks, which is just restaurants or people that get out of culinary school and maybe think they know everything already. There's definitely a good mix of that for sure. Um, I just want, to work with people that are passionate. I don't care if you have a degree. It's a piece of paper. Um, if you love food and you love what you do and you want to learn, then that's amazing. Um, I definitely think there's been a switch in the people coming out of culinary school over the last five, six, seven years um, where they want things right away. Like, I want to be a sous chef within six months. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like, it takes time. Um, you have, to, you have to build up to things. And I feel like right now people don't want to wait for success. They want it right away, um, which is really hard in this industry. Um, you really got to do your time. Like the more time you put into it, the more you get out of it. Um, so regardless of whether you went to school or didn't go to school, um, I've definitely worked with a mix of both and we've worked with some really wonderful people. What do you think is creating that immediacy of of want and sort of this feeling of that you're, that you're owed that, like how, what is creating this vibe where someone who's very, very fresh says, well, yeah, I, I should be a sous chef in six months. What are those, what are those contributing factors from your perspective? I don't know. I just think people want everything right away, just in general. Um, they want to be satisfied right away. Um, I mean, when I started, I didn't even want to be a sous chef. Um, I was like, I just want to cook. I don't want to manage. I just want to. So I think the thing that's hard for me to understand about the trajectory of where people are thinking right now about wanting things right away is they want things that I had never wanted from the beginning. 
I just wanted to cook. I didn't want to. I didn't want to lead a team. I was like, I just want to be part of a team, and get in there and make my fish and be awesome at it, and that's it. Uh, so it's really hard for me to understand the younger generation of like the want, 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 um, where it's take your time and get there. When you get there, you get there. You spend some time in the kitchen at WD Fifty. It's sort of a magical myth fueled place where crazy things happen in the kitchen. A lot of uh, talented people have gone on to do interesting projects there. I'm curious about what you learned in your time there. From what I've read about it, it seems very, um, very different than what your style is. So how did being in a molecular gastronomy forward kitchen either impact you or did it not impact you? It scared the shit out of me. Um, I was just there as an extern, um, but it was a big time. I mean, there was, I mean, Wiley was on the line. Um, Marta Carbone was uh, a garment Sam Mason was running the pastry program. It was, I didn't, I was a fish out of water in that place. Um, I didn't know anything about food. I mean, I had gone to culinary school, but there's that moment where you're like, oh my God, I don't know anything about anything. It's because they were doing some crazy stuff. Um, I just remember going in and doing, I would go to school, then I would work there and I would do that for three days or four days. And then I would work a job to actually pay for my apartment. So like I had no free time. It was, there were moments where I would be cleaning a 50 pound bag of onions and that's just what I did or 25 pounds of squid or clean these shallots or clean this garlic. I mean, I wasn't cooking. I wasn't doing anything, which is what externs need to do which is how I treat externs when they come in. Like you got to do, you got to do the stuff that sucks that no one wants to do because that's when you realize that that piece of garlic was then put into this, that then finalized this dish, that then you need to, you need to start where everything began and work up. And that's what was so great about that place. I was scared every day I went in. I didn't know how to sharpen my knives. They were dehydrating stuff. They were making foams. It was, it was bonkers. I mean, I wish I could work in a kitchen like that now not my own kitchen, but just to hang out in the kitchen with that experience again, just having some sort of knowledge. Um, but it was, it was crazy for me. I mean, there were days where I'd leave and I was like, what am I doing? I was like, this is not, this is not what I want to do. This is not what I signed up for. And then the next day I'd be like, this is exactly what I want to do. This is exactly what I signed up for. Do you think it was that way because of the like the intensity or the, the talent and you, you didn't think that you fit in or was it because of the style of the restaurant? Like what, what was the thing that was pushing you in that direction of, of doubting and, and fearing? I think it was all of those things. I just, I didn't understand the food. Um, they were just like way beyond my capacity of understanding. Um, the food was delicious. Um, but it was just, it was not understanding the food because I really didn't know anything about food at that point. Or not under, like, the the talent that was around me was just outrageous. Um, and it was, like, coming in, I mean, I wasn't 18. I was 24. Uh, and at this point, like, my friends had, like, had jobs. And, I mean, they'd only had jobs for two or three years. But at this point, I was like, I feel old coming into this. And I'm, tw I'm 24. I mean, there are people that switch their careers that start this at 27 or 28, 29, 30. Like, I don't even understand how they do that. Um I wouldn't change that for anything. I, I really ended up being part of something that was really magical. And 
when I, at the end of my externship, and I, I got the courage to ask if they, they were going to hire anybody or if I was, had a chance to be hired, and they were very honest. And I felt like I needed to ask for that, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been the right path for me to start. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about how that conversation went when you asked for a job or if you were ready for a job? It was, it was at the end. Um, it might have even been my last day, and they had taken me out for drinks, and I had asked the sous chef. I was like, you guys going to be hiring? Like, what's going on? Um, I'd love to be a part of this team. And he's like, well, we're not hiring. I mean, there were five people working in that kitchen. Um, so they didn't need anybody. Uh, so that was great. Um, and it was fine. I was fine with it. It was just, I don't even know if I wanted to work there as much as it being, I should ask for a job because I just done my time. So like, this would be so easy just to like, not have to look for anything. You guys just hire me. That'd be great. Um, it ended up working out for the best that they didn't have a spot for me. Uh, cause I was so far behind in what the level of them being able to teach and, Everyone that had been there had been working in the industry in New York for for years, uh, so I really I had no place to be there. <laughs> Where did you end up? I ended up at a great. I ended up at Mercer Kitchen, which was amazing. Um, I started off doing lunch services there, and worked with really wonderful people who actually had time to teach me sort of basics of how to do things, um, which gave me my foundation um, of knowledge. Uh, what is a basic type thing that you learned at Mercer <clears throat> Kitchen? Are we talking like basic basics? I wouldn't like, say just basic. I think what was helpful for me was being comfortable. Um, that kitchen was, at, which was really the only kitchen I've ever worked in, where all of the AM team or the lunch team was all women, which is now that I'm thinking about it, crazy because I until I got to Lupa, which was years later in my career, I worked in kitchens that had women, but no women in management, which was crazy. I was thinking about that this morning. Um, it was a place filled with people who were from all walks. So there were some cooks that had been cooking for six or seven years. There's some people that were out of culinary school for a year. I felt more comfortable being in that space because I felt like they were going to be able to teach me. Um, it was a little... <clears throat> I understood the food more than I ever did at WD-50. So I just felt more comfortable in general. Let's talk about Del Posto. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Ladner is pretty incredible, and he is sort of this god in the pasta game, I guess you could say. I, I, I'm going to make the comparison, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like learning pasta from Mark is like learning how to shoot jump shots with like an NBA all-star, right? Like right. it's like Jordan, mm -hmm. right? He's, uh, it's just, it's go, it goes in every single time. So I'm curious when you started at Del Posto, uh, what, what was that environment like? Because it is, it is such a fancy restaurant. Right. It's very different than Mercer. It's very different than WD 50. Um, but also it seems to be flavor wise in your wheelhouse. Right. So how did that experience kind of come together? Uh, there was a, a sous chef at Mercer um, who was then um, promoted to executive chef who stayed for a year, um, Cruz. And he ended up opening 
Del Posto. So he left Mercer. He made me a sous chef at Mercer. Really excited to work with him. And then he left, um, <clears throat> which was very disappointing to me. Um, but I was very excited for him. So I did my year as a sous chef, and I was just done. Um, I feel like people sort of reach their capacity to stay at a place after a while and things had changed so much and leadership had changed. So I just, I knew I was done with Mercer. Um, but I knew I wasn't prepared to be a sous chef someplace else because I'd only been there for three years. They'd promoted me. Um, I was actually there two years when I'd gone through the whole line and then they had promoted me and I was like, this is crazy. So I sort of followed him to Del Posto. Um, I went in and trailed and I was terrified because I'd, I'd never seen a kitchen like that. I mean, the kitchen is huge. It's, they have walk-in refrigeration, like it's like to the point where the butcher room's refrigerated, like it's crazy. Um, so once again, scared out of my mind, um, wondering what I'm doing here, hung out with the fish line and Mark Ladner came up to me at the end of the night and was like, so what are you doing here? I was like, I just want to learn. I want to cook. I don't, I just, I want to cook again and I want to learn, and I'm a hard worker. And he's like, okay. And I started, I think, three weeks or four weeks later um, as a line cook. Um, I was so fortunate to be able to be promoted to a sous chef in my first job and so excited about that. Um, but I definitely hadn't learned even remotely. I'm still learning now. Um, so going onto the line again was great. Uh, and especially in a kitchen where he was elevating Italian food, which is something that I just didn't understand. Um, like I said, my understanding of Italian food was very red and white checkered tablecloths. Um, the menu is the same menu every place you go, um, which isn't a bad thing. I still love that. I'll eat chicken parm every day if you ask me to. Um, but he really elevated my understanding of what Italian food can be. Um, so Del Posto was amazing to me. Was there a specific dish or even like a stock or sauce or something that you made at Del Posto that you still remember in its, doesn't have to even be in its complexity, but something flavor wise that, that, that when you made it, you felt a sense of accomplishment or when you tasted it, you felt a sense of, of wonder. How, how does this, how did this happen? Yeah. Um, I mean, there were stocks. I ended up working on the meat line and there were stocks that took four days to make into the final sauce because it was a constant rerun. And then, yeah, like it was crazy. Um, looking back, it was wild. I mean, to, to make a sauce that literally it's really, gets a, it's really intense <laughs> one tablespoon on a plate that just took five days to make. Um, but it was outstanding. And there was so little on the plate because that's all the plate needed or doing a, a fine cut on a mirepoix to then get folded into duck fat that then gets quenelled over, um, over uh, like a stock for something that's the final plating. Like it was insane. It sounds, <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've eaten there and I've had several bites that I've found unexplainable and just very, very complex. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Del Posto and Lupa. And then we're going to get on to Fausto. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio.
Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth generation cheesemakers combine old world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Chef Aaron Chambura of Fausto, which recently opened on Flatbush, just north of Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn. Uh, she has worked at Lartuzzi. She has worked at Mercer Kitchen, Del Posto, and Lupa. And just very recently, in only a couple months ago, she opened up Fausto with Joe Campanile, and it is uh, the first restaurant where she is a partner. Uh, before we get on to the the newest project, when you were at Del Posto and Lupa, and then you joined Epicurean, you were a sous chef at at uh, at Mercer, and then you came over to Del Posto. When did you start feeling like you had? sort of your leadership skills and when you felt started getting really comfortable being a leader in the kitchen did it happen did you have to wait until you got to epicurean or did it happen somewhere in in the lupa del del posto phase um i think it happened uh maybe a year into lupa um i felt like i really had a, a a good grounding on how to try to teach people or help people um what was nice about Lupa was when I transitioned over there, I was a sous chef, but I was also doing line shifts. So I would do two or three pasta line shifts during the week, and then I'd have two manager shifts. So what was nice was there was definitely the transition of like still being a line cook. So you still have the camaraderie with the line guys because they know you can cook. So then when you have to manage them, sometimes that's a little bit easier. Um, so I think doing that, um, I think I was on the line for seven or eight months, maybe almost a year. Um, so I think that made it easier for me to feel more comfortable being a leader amongst that crew because I was actually in it with them as opposed to just being sometimes a sous chef who, um, which isn't a bad thing. It's a lot of sous jobs. You're not cooking. Uh, you're more managing and directing and so on and so forth. Um, so that's really where I feel like I got my good bones of the foundation of how to be a leader. And sometimes getting getting hired into that position, you're a new face and everybody says, I don't know you. Right. I, I've never worked with you before. I, right. I don't know what you're, what you're about. At, um, at Epicurean, it was a fairly large restaurant group mm-hmm. that you became a part of. How many restaurants were there? Uh, and and 
What was that like to join a, a group where all the restaurants are cohesive in in their identity, and probably there's some a lot of a lot of top down information that you're receiving. So you've got sort of a, a, a it's a very corporate structure mm-hmm. compared to a standalone restaurant. How did that affect your ability to grow and learn and still become a chef? Uh, coming into Lartusi was really exciting. I had actually worked with Gabe at El Posto. Um, we were on the line together. Um, Gabe was the chef at Lartuzzi when you joined? Yes, he was the owner, uh, chef owner, um, or partner. Um, So he hired me at Lartuzzi. So it was exciting to see sort of how when he had left El Posto and then they'd opened El Anima, and now they were opening a second place. Um, So when I decided to leave Lupa and go there, um, Lartuzzi had been a year old, maybe a little more than a year old, and there weren't that many systems, as many systems as you think would be set up. Um, there weren't. I mean, the the one of the sous chefs there just started sort of putting together order sheets. <laughs> so a lot of the stuff that I would, they would be sort of my first thing. Like, let's come up with a menu and then let's figure it out and then let's get order sheets and then how, where you order from. Like, that's all just seems really natural to me, which when I started there, wasn't really what was happening. Um, Gabe and his other sous chef, they just would take yellow notepads and go through and be like, oh, we need lettuce. Oh, we need this. Oh, we need that. Um, Which isn't how I sort of think or how I run kitchens or how I do anything. So a lot of it was actually coming up with systems and organizations from sort of the beginning that I was helping the other sous chef with, which was great. It was great experience for me to sort of help put that together. Um, but yeah, it was crazy coming into Lupa. I I mean, Lartusi, it was a, they hadn't been open that long. Um, and it was just, it was an exciting time. I mean, I didn't even realize what position I was really starting for. I thought it was going to be a sous chef. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, you're the, oh, you're the new chef de cuisine. I was like, I guess. Okay. Um, which was awesome. Um, I loved working for Gabe. I loved working for that company. It was amazing. I mean, I've met some really great people along the line. And it was popular fast and it was busy mm-hmm. right yeah, right away their first year and a half they were busy but then two years into it or two and a half years they got that um we got a zagat review that just sort of blew the lid off of everything i mean i felt like we were a legit neighborhood restaurant where you saw like the regular same couples that lived in the village come in and it was great and then the Zagat review came out, and it was just bonkers. And then from there on, it was just crazy. And so how many restaurants were were in the group? Uh, right, I mean, you, you left and Joe left, but how many were in the group towards the end of your tenure there? Um, it was – Del Anima was the first, then Lartusi. Then uh, soon after I started Lartusi, they opened Anfora, which is the wine bar. Um, they'd had a restaurant open and close, um, called Elibes, uh, and then Lupiccio was the final, um, was the final restaurant and Lupiccio was open for three years. Um, it closed in May, I believe. And when they were all open and you were working there, did it feel like you were part of something gigantic or did it still have sort of that original small time neighborhoody feel? Did it change dramatically over time? Um, Lartusi definitely, I, I felt like it changed, um, which is great. I think restaurants need to evolve. They need to change. Um, the group got bigger. Um, they ended up opening a commissary kitchen and then branching out into catering and 
there were a lot of different moving parts that were happening within the group, but my focus was always on Lartusi and doing what I could to make Lartusi amazing and make it consistent and make people want to come back and eat the food and whatever was happening within the rest of the group was all important for the group, but my focus was definitely what was happening within the within the walls of Lartusi. Did you and Joe leave at the same time with the intention of doing a project together? Did you leave separately and reconnect? How did how did your exit happen and how did you reconnect with Joe again? We left for different reasons um, and at different times. I gave my notice at the end of March. Uh, I was just sort of... Of what, of what year? Oh, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> 2015? Well, okay, yeah. Um, no, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, March 2016. Uh, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, we were both been in the industry in New York for over a decade He's a bartender, um, and he was at Gramercy Tavern at the time. And we just both got to the point where we just weren't satisfied with work and New York and anything that was happening. So we're like, let's maybe we'll quit our jobs. Um, we'd actually been in Italy the September before uh, <laughs> on a trip, and I was like, how much do you think rent is here? And it started off as like a joke. Um and then slowly over the next few months, it's like, maybe we should move here. And then we wouldn't talk about it. And then New Year came, the New Year's came around and I was like, we need to decide what we're doing because I need to decide if I'm giving my notice. We need to decide where we're going to go, what's going to happen. Um, and then, yeah, then all of a sudden it was March and I was like, I'm gonna, that's it. I'm giving my notice. Um, and Joe was still with the company. And they were definitely, there was definitely a lot of behind the scenes things happening um, with the partners about where the trajectory of the restaurants were going to go. Joe and August were sort of figuring out ownership. Um, So I gave my notice um, and that was it. And that was amazing. And this is probably the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, But I'd been there six years and I didn't think I could do anything more for the restaurant. And I loved it so much. And I was like, I'm going to make this decision for me. So we left, and then we moved to Italy for three months. Where did you go? We lived in uh, a small uh, city called Treviso, which is about 30 kilometers from Venice. Um, does tons of Treviso grow in Treviso? It does, but it's seasonal, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're, we're never there. <laughs> it's actually in season. Um, but it's just a, it's, a, it's a tiny little city. We've been there a handful of times. Um, we were comfortable with it. Um, and then... A week before we left, I took a month off in between when I left Lartusi and when we actually flew out. Joe called me, I think a week before we were going to fly out, and he's like, what are you going to do in the fall? And I was like, dude, I just quit my job. I don't know. Um, I really had no thought. I didn't know if we were coming back to New York. I didn't know what we were doing. Um, and he was like, all right, well, these this is sort of what I'm thinking about, so maybe think about it. And then he started to look for spaces and then he found the space and then contacted me in Italy. <laughs> and so you're in Italy and you get an opportunity to open up an Italian neighborhood <laughs> restaurant. Yes. And does that phone call or that email from Joe, does it immediately convince you yes? Or did you need some prodding and a little bit of I need I needed twisting? time. <laughs> I needed time. Um because the whole reason was to not think about 
It was to just hang out in Italy, eat and drink, travel, relax, not think about what the next step is, is come back in September and figure out what the plan is. Um, so Joe definitely changed a little bit, <laughs> actually a lot of it for me, um, where he was pretty consistent about reaching out, whether it was like, let's plan a phone call or emailed or then he found the space. Um, and then the last three weeks, I just told him to leave me alone. I was like, I'm back on September 19th. We'll talk three days later. Um, so he left me alone for the three weeks because I I'd thought about it the entire time. And then we got back and we just hit the ground running. So when you got back, was the space that you're currently in, was that the space that had it been found or were you still pursuing spaces? No, the first space uh, we saw, uh, we didn't end up going with. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually revisited again months later, but we looked for a space for over nine months. I mean, we saw a ton of places in Brooklyn um, and nothing really felt like a fit. And how we ended up um, at what used to be Franny's uh, now uh, we had sat down with Andrew and Franny about doing pop-ups in their downstairs PDR. So they knew we were looking. And we had actually just left seeing a space on Atlantic Avenue. Um, and we're like, can we make this work? I think we can make it work. Can we make it work? And he's like, Franny actually emailed me. I can't really email or called him and left a message. And he's like, I'm going to call her back. I was like, okay. So I remember the exact spot outside the bodega we were standing on on State Street when she said that she would, they were thinking about closing and whether or not we would want to take the space. Franny's, for, for you both to take it over, to me seems like it could go one of two very different ways. Either it makes perfect sense because you have a built-in clientele that enjoys Italian food and you know it's a neighborhood restaurant and people know the, the address, they know the location. On the flip side, you're always going to be in the footsteps of Franny's. Right. For you, what were your thoughts on the space? Were you, what, what were your emotions when you acquired the space and knew that you were going to be doing a Italian restaurant in your own vision in a space that had been an Italian restaurant for 10 years? It was a crazy feeling. Um, I mean, I loved going to Franny's, so it was sad when I knew that they were closing, but when we had sat down to talk about maybe doing pop-ups and I got to walk through that space, it was that moment where I was like, I don't, I need to find a space just like this because it's amazing. Um, so I feel really fortunate to be there. Um, intimidating 100% knowing of what we were stepping into, but I think we have a lot of the same values and we want to provide something for the community and do it right and welcome neighbors in. And we have a lot of the same um, passions that Franny and Andrew had when they were running the restaurants and when they had the chefs running the restaurant. Um, and it's been a humbling experience because we, I was really nervous that the neighborhood wasn't going to accept us. Um, because everyone loved, everyone loved Franny's. Um, but the reaction that we've gotten from people who've loved that place has been really wonderful and they've been coming back and we have servers that used to work there that are now working with us and they know the regulars and they know the faces and people have been really happy with what we're providing 
um, which has been amazing. That's pretty wonderful to have that kind of continuity and also be a new player in the neighborhood, but have some uh, aspects of, of what it previously was. One of the main decisions that was made was that you are not utilizing the ovens for pizza. Uh, pizza is a crowd pleaser. It mm-hmm. has good margins. Uh, I'm watching people eat it right now. <laughs> there's, there's people in view of us in Roberta's eating many a pizza. Was it a long discussion to not serve pizza? Was it a difficult decision? Who kind of made the final call? You or Joe? Collaborative? Curious about that? That um, the the pizza discussion? If if it even was a big deal? We didn't even have a pizza discussion. Um, I don't think I could ever do pizza out of that space. That was was people love that pizza, and I we didn't want to recreate Franny's. It wasn't about recreating Franny's. It was about doing and making a space that we love that was that's very much who we are um and pasta is what i love to do um so i never had a thought of ever doing pizza out of those ovens um what was exciting when we knew we had that space was what am i going to do out of those ovens um which is all the entrees which is i think really exciting um i had never cooked with ovens like these before um so I just feel like I'm scratching the surface with what I can actually do. Um, but yeah, everyone, that's that was the main question is, well, I can't believe you're not doing pizza. I was like, I could never, like the pizza that's happening in Brooklyn right now, like there's no way that I could do something to top what was happening in that space, what is happening all throughout um, other other restaurants. Like, yeah, pizzas, I love eating it, but it's the dough, I don't know. It's just not. It was never a thought that ran through my mind. You had the, let's call it the luxury of being able to work with your future business partner for a really long time in a capacity that uh, made you very comfortable. You probably knew a lot about each other before uh, deciding to embark on a different type of journey, which is being in a partnership. Was there anything that has surprised you about the experience from transitioning from being a leader in the kitchen to being both a leader in the kitchen, but also perhaps having additional responsibilities uh, as a owner slash chef. Wow. Um, I mean, I don't think it's any different than how I was at Lartusi. I mean, I think what has been really exciting is being able to make decisions about things. Um, whether it is the the water glass or what what bowl the pasta is going in, um, I think the most exciting thing is just making all of those decisions and being in on the conversations for them, and being mindful of every little aspect of a guest's experience. Um, whether it's how the the person at the front door greets them or what glass the wine is going in or what does the wine menu look like. Um, that's been the biggest change is being a part of, um, all the decisions, uh, being made as, as opposed to maybe just LR2C, I just did the food, um, which was amazing. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that goes into opening a restaurant. Um, a lot of stuff that I didn't even think of. I think that Joe didn't even think of that, uh, it's, you're, you're learning all over again. Um, and right now it's, 
every being involved in every decision is probably the biggest change, um, which is definitely why I feel like I'm pulled in a million different directions on a daily basis. <laughs> you have a ton of experience in, in the kitchen, and I, I just I want to ask for sort of a specific: is there something? Is there something with the new restaurant that you feel is not there yet? I don't necessarily mean a dish. I mean, like, is there something, uh, basically, I'll give you an example. Me as a new business owner, my brother and I have struggled to uh, impart our vision of what we hope the restaurant can be like to new staff because Mm -hmm. you get busy trying to train them. You hope that they'll just show up the next day. And then you move, something else happens, right? right? So is there something that maybe you feel like you're perhaps not doing the best job at right now and you, you it's sort of like on your yellow notepad of something you want to get to? <laughs> um, that's just, I think it's just really broad. I think at this point we've only been open since December. So I feel like everything's sort of in transition and moving forward and some things are changing and some things aren't. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been a crazy two months. Um, my notes and my lists are like really, really long. Um, it's finding what to focus on first is my, is sort of my issue. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think in a year, a lot of things are going to be different. Um, I think in two months, things are going to be different. Um, I don't think there's one thing. I think everything is evolving. Um, whether it's the menus or, like you said about training staff or trying to teach them what are um, the, the, the direction or what we want the final product to be. I think that's always ever evolving. Um, I think we've only scratched the surface of that right now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I've <laughs> been, I've been into the restaurant and uh, I know Joe and I, I obviously I'm familiar with his, style of hospitality and the way that he can touch tables and everything like that. And the way you've warmed up the room, I found really wonderful. I'm curious about a specific moment for you when you've been in the kitchen. Have you looked out and, and, you know, during the first service, during the second week of service or something like that, uh, can you just describe what the emotions are like when you have realized that you are in your own restaurant with not only your own menu, but the space that you've built? What is, what is that like? What goes through your head? It's really overwhelming. Um, it seems sort of crazy. There's some days where I look out, I'm like, this is nuts. Um, I mean, there were dishes that the cauliflower dish, for, in, uh, for instance, I made that dish in my apartment. Like I tested that in my apartment. So when I get overwhelmed with the emotion of like, oh my God, like that's my plate. Like those, that's my, like, it's crazy. Um, just looking out and I often flash back to when we first got the keys and the first time I lit the fire in the ovens, like it's still almost numbing to the point where this is my baby. Um, this is our baby. Like it took a year to get this to where we are right now. Um, I would just say overwhelming. It just sometimes it just feels nuts um, to look out and be like this. This is this is the vision that we worked on, and it's happening. One of the most difficult challenges about this city is labor. There's uh, not only sort of 
a general shortage of people that are talented and willing to stick around, but also it's just generally incredibly expensive to run a restaurant. How have you, in the first couple months, how have you obtained people that, that are quality? And also, uh, for those listening that may work in a restaurant or are hoping to, hoping to open one soon, what's your kind of kitchen leadership owner strategy for uh, retaining and fostering talent in your own restaurant? Uh, I just want to provide a space where people want to come to work, where they're passionate about the food they're putting out. Um, it's it's more than a paycheck, uh, which is tough to say in an industry where cooks don't really make any money. Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to hire people that a few of my line staff used to be managers in kitchens who have a great experience uh, both managing and cooking. Um, and then I have some people who have only worked in the industry for a few years. Um, we definitely have a wide range of individuals in our kitchen. Um, I just want to create a really safe, fun place for them to work where everyone can be creative and do things they've never done before, like working with wood ovens. Um, to both of my line guys, one is a female, one's a male. Neither of them had ever had this kind of, of an experience. So that was exciting. Um, I, I've been really fortunate at Fausto to have a really great opening team. Um, I know there will be some bumps in the roads as we move forward for sure. Um, but just providing a, a great atmosphere for my cooks is I want to create an atmosphere as if I was a line cook and I worked there and how I would want to be treated. And uh, I think I'm really conscious of making sure that everyone feels good about the space that they're in when they come into work. I want to sort of whet the appetite of the listeners and, and do a little radio food porn for a second. Take me through... Uh, your favorite dish. I know probably impossible to choose. Take me through one of your favorite dishes, the components of it. Uh, if it has an interesting technique in the pickup, uh, I know it's difficult to say something that embodies the restaurant, but one of the dishes that you feel is a great representation of, uh, of Fausto. Uh, for me, I would say that would be the, the whole wheat bigly, uh, that we're doing. It's a really special noodle. Um, it's a noodle that, uh, comes out of the Veneto, which is the region of Italy where we lived. Um, it's a thick spaghetti, but what's really special about it is it when it's done traditionally, it's done out of a hand-extruded crank machine. So it almost looks as if something that when you would like, um, you really have to churn it. So it's, it's truly a labor of love. Um, it's a noodle that I fell in love with when I was there. Um, I'm really excited for the whole wheat, the whole wheat flour I'm getting from upstate New York, um, from farmer ground, doing it with a duck ragu, which is really special. Um, it's just from start to finish, it, it's, it's just a beautiful dish that I really love and is a twist on a traditional Italian, um, dish that brings me back to the feelings that I get when I was eating in Italy. Perfect. Where is the restaurant located? Let everybody know so they can come check you out for dinner. We are at 348 Flatbush in Brooklyn. And are you open seven days a week? We're open seven days a week. Um, 
Sunday and Monday from 530 to 10, Tuesday through Saturday, 530 to 11. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us, uh, taking a little time away from your very busy opening schedule since you're still in the first couple months of being open. Uh, best of luck to you in your first year. Thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Line. Come back next week, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a brand new chef or restaurant tour telling their story here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.